up our series called Making a Messiah, where we've been basically just going through the Gospel of Luke, and so we're going to spend a lot of time and read a lot of scripture this morning from the Gospel of Luke. And then on Father's Day, we will launch a brand new message series entitled Interview with the Devil, and so we're going to spend four weeks on that on, on Father's Day. And you don't want to miss that. We'll have brats outside grilling on Father's Day and all sorts of things going on. But uh, we have covered the vast majority of the Gospel of Luke. And my hope is that if you ever have to read through the Gospel of Luke from like beginning to end, as you read it, it'll be familiar to you. Like you'll recall and remember some of these messages and it won't feel either boring or confusing to you. Kind of make some sense in regards to even historical background. And just by way of review, what we've been talking about is Luke who by way of profession is a doctor and a Gentile, he's the only Gentile author of the entirety of Scripture, is writing to an audience of Gentiles attempting to make the case in a two-volume documentary set. So in your Bible are two books. One is the Gospel of Luke that we're studying, and the other is the book of Acts, in which he is trying to state and make the case that this man Jesus from Nazareth is in fact the Messiah. And so we've been on a journey to listen to the witness and evidence of both Jesus' teachings, his ministry, and his power, and most of it should be leading us to ask this most important question, who is this man? In which case Luke is attempting to provide via the evidence an answer, and that is, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention to geography, but most of the Gospel of Luke is spent in the region of Galilee. And so if you see a map here, this is the region of Galilee. And so you see Nazareth over here. This is where Jesus is raised. And it's also where he launches his public ministry. You might remember one of the first weeks. And it goes, it's disaster. Like the, his hometown synagogue tries to kill him. And so from Nazareth, he goes up to Capernaum, which is just north of the Sea of Galilee here. And that will be for him home base and home headquarters in regards to his campaign to be the Messiah of Israel. And he'll spend a lot of time in this area, Bethsaida, Chorazin, uh, the Gerasenes on the other side of the lake where he met that demoniac. So he spent a lot of time, Nain you see down here, close to Nazareth where he raised the son of that widow who was dead. And so you see a lot of time that he has spent in Galilee. Now, this is where he will call his disciples, and he'll become very known in this area. And you need to think about it like sports markets. And what I mean by that is, if you were to grow up in the Northeast, maybe in the area of Boston, then because of where you grew up, most likely you would be a Tom Brady fan and maybe a Patriots fan. There's a good chance that you would root for the Boston Red Sox because that is the marketplace in which you grew up. And that's kind of what you're used to. Not all the time, but oftentimes that's the way it is. Or on the other hand, if you grew up on the West Coast, you would be paying attention to an entirely different set of teams and players, maybe the Golden State Warriors, Stephen Curry, and you'd, kinda, you'd be following along those sports teams. And of course... If you grew up in heaven and were around the throne room of God uh, and the lamb that was slain, you would be paying attention to the Cubs, and Jake Arrieta would be your team. So, uh, so you get what I'm saying, right, in terms of marketplace? Okay, so anyhow, back to Galilee. So in the north is Galilee, and in this region, Jesus is a hit. Like, he's, he's doing okay in terms of his campaign to become the Messiah. He's a homegrown boy. He is what is called a smicha rabbi, meaning one who teaches with authority, He's recognized as a healer and a teacher and a miracle worker. But if you're trying to be the Messiah, you got to transcend Galilee. And it's an uphill battle because, truthfully, Galilee and Galileans were kind of known to be 
little backwood, redneck, blue collar, uncouth, uneducated. They prefer Bud Light over craft beer. That's the kind of sort of place that you're at in Galilee. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Philip, he tells Nathaniel, hey, I think we found the Messiah, and he's from Nazareth. And do you remember, you remember what Nathaniel's response was? He says, in John chapter 1, verse 46, he says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Like, no, listen, it's a Galilee. Nothing good comes out of that area. Now, later, uh, and we'll see this in a moment here, this morning even, when Jesus is on trial and his disciples are kind of in the courtyard trying to figure out what's going on, Peter is actually identified as a Galilean because he's got a Galilean accent. Like, he talked funny. Like, compared to the rest of Israel, those Galileans, they talked with an accent. But Jesus is a hit in Galilee, and that's great. But if he's going to be the Messiah... He's got to make it to the big city, to Jerusalem. Because what is the Messiah, after all? The Messiah is a descendant of King David. And what is Jerusalem but the city of King David? And so it doesn't matter if you're able to win the Galilean primary. You aren't going to win the general election if you don't make it in Jerusalem. So Jesus will spend a large portion of his ministry in the region of Galilee, and he'll make an appearance in other places, and, you know, Decapolis will be another place we'll read about, and word about him will spread into Judea, and when that happens, the Jewish leaders will send up uh, kind of interrogators to ask Jesus a bunch of questions, but at some point, Jesus and his ministry knows he's going to have to gather up his disciples, and they've got to head south. If he's going to be the Messiah, he can't remain in Galilee. At some point, he's going to gather up his apostles and say, we're now on our way to Jerusalem. And according to Luke's gospel, Jesus even tries to give a heads up to his disciples about what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem and his own impending death. But the problem is, his apostles have this preconceived idea of what the Messiah is supposed to be like, and death is not in that equation. So it always goes over their head anytime Jesus tries to give them forewarning about what's supposed to happen. But if you're just a disciple of Jesus, like if you're a follower, if you really believe that he's the Messiah, when the Messiah says, we're now on our way to Jerusalem, you're just full of anticipation. You're full of excitement. Because this means Messiah is about to take the city of Jerusalem. And when that happens, he's going to kick out all of our enemies, meaning the Romans. We're going to have our free and independent state again. And all those Jewish leaders who abused their power and compromised with Rome, they're going to get it too. And you'd have a great deal of excitement. Like you people be full of excitement knowing we're on our way to Jerusalem. It would almost be like here in America where people actually liked the candidates that were running. Could you imagine such a thing? We're marching on to Jerusalem. And when we get there, we're taking back the temple and the city itself. And so what happens is we didn't note it when we were there. We've read this part before. I just want to go back and just, I want you to see a couple things that are in the Gospel of Luke that we kind of passed over while we were there. But this is the point where Jesus in the Gospel says, all right, now we're going to Jerusalem. And so Luke chapter 13, verse 22 is one section. And Luke just kind of throws it out, just kind of as a, a, a miscellaneous comment. He says, then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as what? He made his way to Jerusalem. So what we hear from Luke is, oh, Jesus has now decided we're going to Jerusalem. In fact, in the same chapter, chapter 13 and verse 31, it says this. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus. So he's on his way to Jerusalem, and the Pharisees come to him and say, leave this place and go somewhere else because Herod wants to kill you. Now, Herod is the tetrarch, the one who's the Jewish leader over this region. And Jesus says back in verse 32, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for, listen, for surely no prophet can die 
outside of Jerusalem. Now, these should be little cues for the disciples to go, wait a minute, what did you say? But they don't. They miss it every time Jesus throws one of these comments out. And then about the city of Jerusalem itself, listen to what Jesus says in verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together like a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings, but you're not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I want you to pay attention to that last phrase. When Jesus says, you will not see me again until you hear this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because you're going to hear that phrase again in just a moment. So keep that in your mind. Uh, let it be back there. But you want, I just want you to see Jesus' heart towards Jerusalem. And he's headed there. And Luke tells us that Jesus is aware of what awaits him when he arrives. Surely, no prophet can die outside of the city. Now, in order for Jesus to get to Jerusalem, he's got to pass through certain regions of Israel. So you can see here on the map, Galilee is over the very north. And then just south of Galilee is the area of Samaria. And as you would imagine, you know who lives in Samaria? The Samaritans. And the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along together. And so Jesus has even used them as illustrations on the positive side, which is probably jolting to Jesus' hearers. You'll remember one story that we did read in the Gospel of Luke where uh, they're trying to pass through Samaria. And the Samaritans won't give them passage through. And you remember what James and John, the sons of thunder, want to do? They want to rain down fire from heaven to kill all these Samaritans. Jesus said, calm down, boys. Like, we're, we'll just find another route. So they're going through Samaria. So what it reads in, in John chapter 17, verse 11, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And then the next chapter, Luke chapter 18, verse 31, it says this, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Which at this moment you'd think, oh, time out, back up, Jesus. What? What do you mean delivered over to the Gentiles? Like, they're going to be kicked out, right? Not the Messiah gets delivered. Anyhow, continue, Jesus. They're going to mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him. Now, even if you're willing to yield this, you kind of go... Oh, well, but he's still the Messiah, so we'll win in the end. And then he says, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And then, verse 34, Luke lets us know, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. And the reason why I think it was probably hidden is because in their mind, they already knew what was supposed to happen when the Messiah showed up. And when you get that in your mindset, it's hard to think of any other paradigm. All you know is he's the Messiah, and this is what's supposed to happen. And so when Jesus is trying to say, it's not going to quite go down like you think, and he's trying to let them in advance warning, it just misses, misses them. So what happens is they make their way through the border of Samaria and Galilee, and they're kind of headed down, and you see the River Jordan. They're kind of snuggled alongside. Here's another uh, map, which is even worse than the first one. There's no way you can see this in the back. Uh, do you see the Dead Sea at the very bottom? Can you kind of make that out? Do you see the black dot that's just north of it? That's Jericho. And we read a story last week about when Jesus was on his way down in Jericho. This is the story of, one, he heals a blind beggar, and then he also goes to the house of Zacchaeus. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man who got up in the sycamore tree. He had dinner. That's Jericho. So you can see how close he's getting to, to Jerusalem now, right? So he's on his way down. He's, he's by Jericho. And when he gets to Jericho, and they're very close to Jerusalem, 
people start getting all excited about this idea, like we're almost to Jerusalem, it's almost going to happen. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear just at once. So he tells them the story of 10 coins and about this guy who's going to go and be inaugurated king, but nobody really wants it. And so when he goes to get inaugurated, he gives his servants his money. He gives 10 to this guy, and he gives 5 to this guy, and 1 to this guy. And the first guy, the first servant, uh, invests the 10. He gets 10 more, and yeah, good job. The next guy invests, get 5 more. But the last guy, he just buried it in a hole and was scared of his master, and, and the master comes back and kills him. Now, what this has to do with Jesus being Messiah, I have no idea, but Luke tells us Jesus tells us this story to calm them down in terms of their expectations. Verse 28 of chapter 19 says this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, this is all going to be important for us in the story, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt that's tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And by the way, if the owner comes out and asks you, why are you taking my donkey, just say, the Lord needs it. Which you should try this today after church, like... Get in somebody's car, and they're like, she's like, like, what are you doing with my car? The Lord needs it. And just see how well that goes over for you. We'll see. Anyhow, uh, let me show you another map here that's taking place. Uh, here's an aerial view. It's in the 21st century, but you can see where things are. You see uh, Bethany and Bethpage over here to the side. This is where uh, Jesus is traveling when he's having the, this is where he's teaching these things. And then you see the Mount of Olives right here close to the center, and then the Temple Mount over on this side. Now, the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives will be very important, so you can see how close everything is. So, Things are building in terms of anticipation because Jesus is getting very close to marching here into uh, Jerusalem. So here's what happens next. Verse 32. How does this untie the colt and give it to me thing work out? Verse 32. Those who were, who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, probably a little nervous, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. <laughs> and it worked. So they brought it to Jesus. Now this is what happens. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people began to take off their coat, and they just laid it down on the road, on the ground, so Jesus could go by on that donkey over everybody. It was a gesture of homage. It was a, a gesture of, you know, of respect and acknowledging who this is. Verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Like, it just breaks out in song. That's what's happening here. And listen to what they're singing. Verse 38. What are they singing? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, remember what Jesus has said earlier in the gospel? Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you hear this phrase. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But here, when they, he's marching in, it's not just he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bless who? The king. The crowd recognizes Jesus is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited king. Now, you have to imagine, if you're a, an apostle, you're like, right on. That's right. I mean, you got to be full. So, like, people know, like, this is, this is actually happening. Like, this is actually going to work. The people recognize who he is. And so they start singing, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, which is what they said, by the way, at his birth at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. But there's some Pharisees in the crowd. And when they hear the people say this, like, they're saying, they're calling Jesus the Messiah, the Pharisees actually rebuke Jesus and say to Jesus, you ought to rebuke your disciples for even saying such a thing. But Jesus, basking in it, he says back, if they keep quiet, these stones will cry out. 
And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he starts crying. It was very masculine, but he starts crying. And he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden to your eyes. In fact, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Which is really kind of a bummer ending to this whole scene. Like, people are, eh, it's the Messiah. And Jesus says, uh, in AD 70, the Roman Empire and their armies are going to come against the city of Jerusalem, and they're going to build an embankment up against the walls of Jerusalem, and they're going to destroy everything inside, including the temple, which, in fact, is what happens in history in AD 70. That's what Jesus is referring here in terms of a prophetic word. So at this point, besides the little prophetic ending here from Jesus, you would be pretty excited about this if you were a disciple. I mean, what an introduction. In fact, Jesus on this donkey, uh, Luke doesn't tell us this because he's writing to a Gentile audience, but Matthew, in his gospel, because he's writing to a Jewish audience, he will actually connect it to prophecies, and he'll remind the people in the gospel of Matthew, hey, Jesus coming in on a donkey is actually significant. Because in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And all that's coming together. You're like, this is the Messiah. Everyone is cheering and welcoming Jesus as, the, as, he, as he enters as king and Messiah. The crowds are going nuts. This is a great campaign stop. But Jesus has been running on a platform of hope and change. And so you would expect the Messiah, when he finally shows up, he's going to take care of business. Things are going to be different around here. In order for things to be different, there's probably going to be some conflict, and conflict is, in fact, exactly what happens. So as soon as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, you know where he goes first? Probably to the bathroom because it was a long trip. But after that, you know where he goes next? He goes to the temple, which, of course, like that's exactly where you'd expect the Messiah to show up to, the temple. And you remember what happens in the temple? As soon as he shows up, he sees like people selling animals for the sacrifices, and it's at greatly exaggerated prices that kind of shuts out the poor. And what Jesus does is he starts overturning tables, and he makes a whip, and he starts driving animals, and I mean, just, just craziness in the temple when Jesus shows up. And if you're a disciple with him, you're probably thinking, that's the Messiah right there. Like, so here's what happens. It's in, it's in verse, uh, verse 45 of Luke 19. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, and you've made it into a den of robbers. And every day, he was teaching at the temple. But the Now listen, after that scene at the temple, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people, they wanted to kill him. Yet they couldn't find any way to do it because all the people hung on all of his words. And then you get to Luke chapter 20, and what you have is a series of conflicts, conflict after conflict, which is what you would expect, right? When Jesus Messiah finally marches into Jerusalem, you'd expect there to be some conflict. And so I'm going to read uh, a lot right now from the Bible. And in preparation for this message, I didn't know if this is a good idea, and it still might not be a good idea, but I'm doing it anyhow. Uh, so, but let me just kind of give you an advance warning. I'm going to read a lot of scripture. And in it, I'm going to challenge you uh, in terms of your listening abilities and ask you to be an active listener. And what I mean by that is, you can be passive, like you just listen, kind of fold your arm, listen. Like, uh, it, it takes special engagement to listen. Now, I'm going to read it like Earl Ray Jones does as the Darth Vader, and so you don't want to miss that. It's going to be fantastic. But, and I'm going to make some commentary, but I just want you to know up front, I'm going to read a lot of scripture. And because of that, um, some of you have different personalities, and it's going to be on the screen behind me, or some of you might have it on your phone, or you actually brought your Bible in front of you, and you might do best to follow along. And if so, do it like that. 
For others of you, you know, no, that's way more distracting to me. Like I read ahead or I, you miss a word and I get tripped up on that. For you, you might be just want to close your eyes. Don't take a nap. Just close your eyes and listen to me read from the word. And that might be best for you. And I'm going to make, I mean, I'll interject some comments uh, along the way. But that, so whatever works best for you, let me encourage you to do as we read a lot of scripture together. Luke chapter uh, 20 is where I'm going to be. Verse 1 says this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news... The chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him, and they say this. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things. They said, who gave you this authority? Because, see, you don't get to go to the temple and overturn tables and then not be called on it. And so that's what's happening. They gather together, and they ask Jesus, what makes you, who do you think you are? That's what they're really asking. Who do you think you are to just march in here and do this? And so Jesus, he turns it around. He says, I've got a question to ask you. John's baptism. Remember John the Baptist? real popular in Israel. Was his baptism from heaven or was it of human origin? Now, this is a trick question. And so they discuss it among themselves and they say, man, if, if we say it's from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, then why don't you believe me? But if we say it was of human origin, all the people are going to stone us because everyone was persuaded that, that John was a legitimate prophet from God. So what they decided to do is just to play dumb. So they ask, answer back to Jesus, we don't know where it was from. And Jesus said, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And then he goes on to tell another parable. We had a week where we talked all about parables and their function and what Jesus does. But this parable will be actually addressed to the leaders of the Jewish people. He says this, there was a man who planted a vineyard and he rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But what happened is the tenants beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant. But that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And so he does it a third time, and that servant, too, was wounded, and they threw him out. Now, when the owner of the vineyard said, well, what should I do? And then he thinks, I know. I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. Hey, listen, this is the heir. If we kill him, the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He'll come, and he'll kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And now when the people heard this, they all said, God forbid. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of what it says when it's written, The stone the builders re uh, rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it will falls will be crushed. But verse 19 is the key here. The teachers of the law and the chief priest looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken that parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. That's a common tension you're going to see here over and over again. So they got to trick Jesus. they got to trap him. And how are we going to do this? Uh, I know. Let's get him embroiled in that big debate that's going on among all of us about whether we should pay taxes to Rome or not because this is a big question going on among the Jews. And they're going to try to trick Jesus and put him in the middle to discredit him from at least one side of the Jewish people or the other. So in verse 20, this is what it says. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. And they hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So here's the question they proposed. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. And that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, you know they're just blowing smoke here, right? They're, just, they're trying to act sincere, but they're really trying to trap them here. Verse 22, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, if Jesus says, 
don't pay taxes to Caesar, he's a jerk. What's going to happen to Jesus? The Roman authorities are going to come and arrest Jesus because he's inciting the mob not to pay what rightfully goes to the Roman Empire to Caesar. If he says, well, of course you should pay your taxes to Caesar, what's going to happen? Every zealous Jewish, every Jew who's zealous for Israel and for the restoration of Israel are now going to think that Jesus is a compromiser to the Roman Empire by advocating that they should give their Jewish money to the Roman emperor. So what happens is, verse 23, he saw through their duplicity and said to them, well, show me a denarius, which was the name of the coin, whose image and inscription are, is on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, well, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. And they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And he astonished uh, by, and they were astonished by his answer, and they just became silent. So next group of people coming into conflict with Jesus. So uh, in the first century, you had different types of Jews. You had the Pharisees. You've heard that word, right? The Pharisees. You also had the Zealots. They were kind of more of a political group. And you had like the Essenes. You ever heard the Dead Sea Scrolls? That's from the Essenes. And then you had the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> see what I did there? All right. I, no, we're moving on. Uh, they, they only accepted the first five books of the uh, uh, Old Testament as legitimate. And so and they're now taking a turn trying to trick Jesus. And so they have this idea, and I won't read it here from the text. I'll just let me paraphrase it. Uh, in the Bible, it's called Leverett Law. What that means is if a man and a woman get married and the man dies but didn't have any kids, his brother has to step in and take his widow and have children with her in his brother's name. That's called Leverett Law, which is, if it was still going on today, dudes, like whoever your brother marries is now important to you. Like, anyway, okay, moving on. So in order to trick Jesus in this whole idea of resurrection, the Sadducees show up and say, hey, Jesus, I've got a hypothetical for you. Let's say a man and woman, they get married, and he dies, and they have no kids. So the second brother steps in, he didn't have any kids, and he died. The third brother steps in, and they didn't have kids. And all the way down to seven sons all end up in the same situation. They all die. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And so in it, Jesus kind of takes on a, you know, this whole thing. And verse 34 is where I'm going to be. Poor Paul, he's trying to figure out where I'm at at all times. Verse 34, Jesus replies this. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, which is either good news or bad news depending on where you're at this morning. Verse 35, or verse 36, and they can no longer die for they're like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection, but in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. And some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and then no one dared to ask him any more questions. But Jesus has a question, so he turns the tables here, and then he asks this. Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? Verse 42, David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? And while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, listen to this, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at all the banquets. But really, they devour widows' houses and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. 
And so what you're having here is there's a head-on collision now between Jesus and the leaders of the Jewish people, whether from the Pharisees or the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. Conflict here is imminent. Now, you will note here there is a pattern that's going on in Luke chapter 21. It says this in verse 37. Luke tells us, every day Jesus was teaching at the temple. And each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. Remember that in our map, the aerial from the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives? And all the people came in the morning to hear him teach. And then at evening, he went back to go camping with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. This is what happens uh, in the evenings there. Okay, you ready for a lot of scripture? And we're going to wrap it up with this. A lot of scripture coming at you. I'm going to be in Luke chapter 22 and 23. Beginning of verse 1 of Luke 22 says this. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Now, by the way, I don't think like Judas gets demon-possessed. Like This isn't like the Exorcist movie. Um, I think Judas, along the way, probably became disenchanted with Jesus. Like I think his expectations of what the Messiah was going to do or be like was starting to kind of, he was starting to see, I don't know if this is going to go down like I thought it was going to go down. And I think his heart was already starting to kind of turn on Jesus, that maybe this isn't quite working out the way he expected it. And in that, his heart was ready to be moved into, so to speak, by Satan to do what happens next, which is in verse 4. Judas himself goes to the chief priests and the officer of the temple guard, and he makes a plan on how they can betray Jesus. And then they were delighted, and they agreed to pay him money for it. And he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And then in verse 7 is the Last Supper, and it's a template of what we even did earlier during communion. It happened during the Passover Seder, and in the same way that with the colt that uh, Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem, the same thing happens here where Jesus says to his disciples, I need you to go on into the city, and I want you to find a jar. There's going to be a man carrying a jar of water, and just talk to him and ask him where the Lord is going to make preparations for his disciples in the Passover. He's going to show you to an upper room and go make your preparations there. And so that's exactly what happened. Verse 14 is where I'm going to be at. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, which is that's how they ate back then, which I love that. I don't know why we got away from that, like, but they were laying down, snacking. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until I find fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread, and he gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Okay, now several things are happening here. Let me... Um, if you notice, if you read through Matthew and Mark, it only shares the bread and the cup. You ever notice that? But when you get to Luke, there's two cups and one bread. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. The reason is because it's the Passover Seder. You know how many cups of wine they had to drink during the Passover Seder? Four, which means it's a lot of fun. That's what, I mean, that was the Passover Seder. Very relaxed by the end of the evening. And, and Luke's kind of giving us a glimpse of two of the cups. What Jesus is doing, though, every year when they took the Passover Seder, they would retell the story of the Passover of that time when God delivered through the blood of the Lamb his people from the Egyptians. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's retelling that story but putting himself in as the Lamb of God. And he's reinterpreting those symbols to be now around him to say that God's salvation will now be through my blood and through my body 
and he wants his disciples to remember. And so that's what we did earlier when we took communion. It was to remember, again, what Jesus has done and to celebrate that at his table. Now, let's figure out what verse I'm in. Verse 22. Oh, yeah, and then he says, uh, he says to them, uh, hey, my betrayer, his hands are on the same table as mine right now. And can you remember what that must have been like to everybody? That little paranoid walk in there. Everybody's getting paranoid like, you know, oh, I bet it's that dude. Thaddeus. Thaddeus is always shady. I bet it's Thaddeus. Like, that's what's happening in everybody's mind. Verse 22, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do such a thing. <laughs> and then another argument breaks out about which one of them is the greatest, which is just crazy to me, right? They're at the table with Jesus, and it leads to an argument over, I'm the best, I'm the greatest, I think Jesus likes me more than anyone else. And we've already seen this in the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus has to come in all the time and try to remind them it's not power over others, it's power under so once again, Jesus has to give them this same speech. Verse 25, Jesus says to them, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but not, this will not be the case with you. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, which I guarantee you is going all over their head. Like, nobody gets this. But then look what happens in verse 31. Jesus will look right at Peter and say this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And then when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, in this moment, Jesus had just said, somebody here is going to betray me? And you got to imagine for Peter at this moment, he's like, hey, what? Like, all eyes are on Peter at the moment. And so he says back in verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to the prison. I'll even die with you if I have to. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will have denied three times that you even know me. And so Jesus looks at all of them and says, when I sent you out without your purse and bag and sandals, did you lack anything? Nope, nothing, they answered. He said, well, now, if you have a purse, you should take it. If you got a bag, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and you should get one. As it's written, as he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me, yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciple said, see, Lord, here are two swords. <laughs> That's going to be enough to take on everything. But Jesus says, all right, calm down with the swords. That's enough. So what happens next is Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. So he's in the temple teaching. In the evening, he goes out to the Mount of Olives to go camping. On reaching the place, when they get there, he says, now I want you guys to pray that you don't fall into temptation. And then Jesus himself left his disciples about a stone's throw beyond them, and he knelt down and prayed. And here's where you see the humanity of Jesus come up here. Because he knows what's about to happen, and he doesn't want to. Like, if Jesus could get out of crucifixion, that's what he would like. So he prays in verse 42, Father, if you're willing, would you take this cup from me? Yet not my will, but yours. And then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And we got done praying. He goes back to his disciples, who he just asked to stay awake and pray with him. He found him asleep, just exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. And while he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He walks right up to Jesus, 
and he kisses him. A kiss, like a sign of affection and greeting. And so Jesus says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? <laughs> you know, the two that we got. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear, which means he probably wasn't very good with the sword because he was probably aiming to cut his head off. <laughs> and Jesus says, okay, enough with this. And he touches the man's ear and heals him. And so Jesus says to the chief priest, to the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Now, if you're a disciple, they could, yeah, I, think that's, I thought that was exactly what we were doing here. Like, that's what I thought we were doing. Verse 53, every day I was with you in the temple courts. You didn't lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Now, Peter was following at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them, and there was a servant girl who was seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, wait a minute, this, this, this guy was with, with that dude. Like, they're together. And Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, no, I really, you're, I think you're one of his disciples. You, you know this guy. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another one asserted, certainly this fellow was with him because you're a Galilean. Like, we can just tell by how you sound and what you look like. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Now, verse 61, talk about chilling. Could you imagine this scene? The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Could you imagine what that would have felt like? Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and spoke with him. Before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times. He goes running outside and he just, just weeps bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. And they blindfolded him and demanded, go ahead, prophesy. Tell us who hit you. They said many other insulting things. And at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priest and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. They said, listen, if you're the Messiah, tell us. And Jesus said, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. When they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. And then I'm just going to read the next chapter here, just so you can hear just in Luke's own words. Verse 1, then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, which, by the way, is not true, and claims to be Messiah, the king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowd, listen, I don't find any basis to charge this man, but they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teachings. He started up in Galilee, and he's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked the man if he was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was, then under Herod's jurisdiction, he thought, it's a moment. Okay, I'll just pass this off to Herod. So he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time because it was Passover. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because he'd heard stories about him for a long time and he wanted to see him. And from what he'd heard, he'd hoped maybe he could perform a sign or maybe some other miracle. So he kept, he kind of kept asking him questions, but Jesus didn't give any answers. Eventually, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers, they ridiculed and mocked him. They dressed him in elegant robes. They sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies because Jesus brings people together. 
Verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people. He said, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion, and I've examined him in your presence, and I've really found no basis for your charges against him. In fact, neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Let me just punish him, and then I'll release him. But the whole crowd starts shouting, away with this man. In fact, release Barabbas to us. Now, Barabbas, he had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they just kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Which, by the way, the crowds are so fickle, aren't they? I mean, just a little bit ago, what were they shouting? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And now, nowhere, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them, why? I mean, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty, therefore I will just punish him and I'll release him. But with loud shouts, they insisted, demanding that he be crucified. And then their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown to prison for insurrection and murder, the one they'd asked for, and then they surrendered Jesus to their will. And as the soldiers led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. But Jesus turned to them and he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you'll say, Blessed are the childless women. And the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they'll say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And by the way, two other men, both criminals, were also being led out to be executed with Jesus. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals. One on his right, and one on his left. What Jesus said was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What they did is they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people just stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And then the soldiers also, they came up and they mocked him. And they offered him wine vinegar, which is just gross. And said, if you're king of the Jews, save yourself. They even put a written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. And it got so bad that even one of the criminals who hung there, started to hurl insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal on the other side rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says back, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun just stopped shining. In fact, the curtain of the, the, curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus finally called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said that, he took his last breath. There's a centurion who saw this whole thing go down, and when he saw it, he just praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they just began to beat their breasts, which was a sign, of, a sign of mourning, and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him all the way from Galilee, they just stood at a distance and watched these things. But you've got Jesus' dead body. What are you going to do with that? And there was actually a man named Joseph 
who was a member of the council. But he was a good and upright man who had not consented. He was not along, he didn't want the decision and the action that they took. And he came from a Judean town uh, of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. So Joseph goes up to Pilate and he asks for Jesus' body. Then he took it down from the cross, he wrapped it in linen cloth, and he placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet had been laid in. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. And the woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Now at this moment in Luke's gospel, if you're a disciple, everything goes dark. The rug has been ripped right up underneath you. Because while there might be differences in what the Messiah is supposed to do or what's supposed to happen, nobody had on their list crucifixion. And you'd be left with, after three years now, now what? And even if you're Luke's original readers, and you've just been following along in this documentary for the very first time, at this point, this is nothing but a complete tragedy. We followed this guy's life from birth. All these miracles and healings and amazing things that he's done, and it's all come down to this? It's just a great tragedy. It's a bummer. And Luke gives us no commentary. In fact, if you'll notice in the story, he gives us no theology, no implications. Not once does Luke say, hey, everybody, listen for a moment. What's happening here on the cross will later be used by God for atoning our Like, none of that. He just leaves us as readers recognizing, oh, my goodness, they just, the most brutal form of death imaginable, they just killed Jesus of Nazareth. And if you're one of the disciples, at this moment, it's just dark. And the disciples would have felt it. And you should feel it too. They just killed the Messiah. And it ought to raise up all sorts of questions, but maybe he wasn't the Messiah after all. And Luke holds for us intention, what are we going to do? Until next week, when we get to chapter 24, and we see what happens to the Messiah. Let's stand together, let's pray. God, there's something in the story that you have called us uh, to imitate. Like when your son tells us that if we're going to follow after him as his disciples, we're going to have to carry our own cross and follow after him. And so in this story is an illustration of what it looks like to live a life full of sacrificial love. And that you're calling us then to live our lives out of sacrificial love. Meaning that we actually die to ourselves for the sake of other people. And that has to mean something in regards to our marriages and to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to people that we're going to interact with all week long. And so what I'm praying for right now is even as we've stopped the story here, that even at this point, we recognize we're supposed to imitate this. So teach us this week how to live a life of sacrificial love, trusting that in so doing, we leave it up to you to take care of all things that we put our faith and confidence in you, that we are able to do that, to not defend ourselves, to not place ourselves first, to not look at our own self-interest, but the interests of others, because your God and your son Jesus sits on the throne. In whose name we pray, amen.